All right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show, we have the Twangtown Paramours. We're going to talk with Mary Beth Zammer and Mike T. Lewis. The husband-wife duo started writing songs on their own and then came together and met in a recording studio. And this was a really cool chat. I really like to hear like the the musical origin stories or the 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 nuggets that started what became someone's career or or life path in a way. It's it's very like it's like when someone tells you about their childhood, but in a, in a really interesting focused way. It's a very unique thing and some some people may get, oh, I don't want to hear about when sure, okay, you heard Jimi Hendrix. But I think it's a real magical thing because everyone hears Jimi Hendrix. And what about you hearing Jimi Hendrix makes you choose this, this path? And uh, me and Mike and Mary Beth get into that. And they, they each have a really cool a really cool origin story about how they got into music and then where they met. Um, now, the Twangtown Paramours, they have three albums out. The first two are pretty folk and singer-songwriter based, but this newest one is kind of blues and full band based. Double Down on a Bad Thing. It's out now on all streaming platforms. We're going to listen to the song Talk About Peace of Double Down on a Bad Thing. Will you love your neighbor? Will you turn the other cheek? Or just talk about love, talk about peace. Will you love your neighbor? Will you turn the other cheek? Or just talk about love, talk about peace. You say you pray, well, good for you. But what is God going to see you?
talk about peace off the album Double Down on a Bad Thing, the Twang Town Paramours. Mike and Mary Beth are very sweet. This was a really fun time chatting with them, and I really enjoyed diving into their music, and I think you guys will as well. I think if you uh, don't just dive into the new record, check out the first two. Um, Flowers When You're Dead off their second album is a beautifully written song, and uh, and like we, we talk about it in the conversation. Um, and we also talk a lot about, about teaching and learning music because each one of us have, uh, at least in this interview, have taught in some way. And uh, it's, really, it's, really, it's really fun bouncing that, that mindset off people. Um, so before we get into it, if you guys can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on one of the podcast platforms. It really helps me keep talking to cool guests and, and sharing their insights with you. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Mike and Mary Beth. Let's jump into the jump into the interview. Um, okay. Because Mike, you play you play a lot of you play bits of everything too, right? What do you play? Well, I'm mostly a guitar player, but I'm also a bass player. And then when there's an emergency on a record, I'll I'll play like everything you can ever, you know, anything, as long as I have enough time to sort of piece it together, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And th- did you start off on guitar then? No, my mom was a pianist, classical pianist, and a piano teacher, and her sister was as well, and her aunt was as well, and that's why I don't play the piano. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, like, because sometimes when you grow up around it, you're like, well, that's how it's supposed to sound, and I can't, I can't make it sound like that, you know? I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. <laughs> right. Um, y- you know, um, uh, no, what happened was my mom was a headstrong piano teacher and I was a headstrong piano student and I was five years old and um, she wanted to make sure that anything I was going to do it was going to be as good or better than Horowitz Mm. and um, I was lazy and I didn't want to practice and we drove each other nuts for three years until she finally surrendered and then she said well you're going to play something I said, okay. Well, at that time, the Beatles were really big. I said, well, I'm going to play the guitar. She goes, okay. Well, next week, we're getting you a classical guitar teacher, and you're going to learn it the right way. <laughs> wow. Well, that's, you know, as a, and you said five, right? Yeah. That's, that's to be dedicated at five to anything other than, like, outside is a feat, <laughs> you know? Yeah. We uh, were, you know, I was talking with Mary Beth, you know, we were watching the Olympics and, um, you know, amongst other things, I was a, um, later, later on, I was a ski racer and I, I got to watch, you know, these young athletes give up their childhood to do what they do really, really well. Like to be the best in the world of anything, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a pianist or a guitar player or a ski racer or a skater these people give up their childhoods. They just have to practice and practice and practice. And it's, it's, a, uh, it's a tremendous sacrifice. And I, it can be damaging to kids, but it can also, if you find the right combination of kid who doesn't somehow feel pressured and also loves what he or she is doing, that person can become the best in the world. But that's a very tough combination Look, what, look what's happening to those skaters. Look what happened to Michaela Schifrin. I mean, there's so much psychological stuff involved in doing anything great. Definitely. Um, you know, it's, yeah. um, 
it's anyhow. So yeah, so at age five I started, and and it was um, it wasn't as much fun as I thought my mom was going to make it, and um, you know, <laughs> it's so you know even from the few words we had before we uh, when we were just talking before the interview, I got the idea that you make things fun when you teach music. And then you have innovative ideas, and you're thinking of ways to make, uh, you know, uh, get across to people in different ways, you know, musical theory or musical ideas. And, um, you know, other teachers, they know one way, and it's the old way, and it's, and it's the right way. And if it ain't the right way, and then forget it. <clears throat> so you better be miserable and learn what you need to do, otherwise it's not the right way. <laughs> was it well yeah like at least i try i try i i think i think they're fun and <laughs> I, I, I i've got data that proves that it, the general population thinks this is a fun way to do it but there's always someone who you know it's not digging it um but i'm always trying you know and like because i agree with what you said it it is a, a lot of if you're going to be great at a thing and like especially like a sport like and you dedicate your whole childhood to it that's the payoff and like sometimes like I'll hear people say, "Oh, it's it's a God-given talent." Not to like throw any religious things out there. I'm like, "No, that kid, they did everything but what kids do to get that talent. Like, they earned that mm -hmm. talent." <laughs> like, um, yeah. But it, it's really, it is really interesting what what where that lies, and you know, because like it's kind of the mental trick of making it fun. Like when you learn it the like the right way, boring way, like the the standardized way. To mm -hmm. the person who excels in that finds finds the fun in achieving it or, or or just understanding it or there's some level of like mental game that's being played that makes it fun and some people are just yeah. really good with like being dedicated like I wasn't as a kid <laughs> that was later no um yeah same with me yeah I was gonna say it sounds like the same so like with uh, with classical guitar did it hit too <clears throat> much as it hit was it too much like not like the Beatles in a way, was it too much of what like the piano lessons were like? Yes, and, it was okay. exactly the way. That, it was it was worse because oh, no. um, uh, it, it was you know like they would. I remember you know the first because later on I, you know I was teaching guitar for a long time. I put myself through through uh, college partly by doing that. Um, you know, you start out with in the right hand, you have a, you know the rest stroke and the free stroke, and you're just playing you know the right technique on the first string. And then the second string, and then the first and third, second and third, and then you, you know you start to learn all the notes. There's nothing really musical about right. it, and it, it, it or fun. I mean, I think that's part of the problem. Right. Yeah, there was nothing fun about it. I got lucky because I learned it really fast, and I got I got good really fast. And so you know, in a little while, uh, we were playing music rather than you know these unmusical exercises, and I think that's another trick, by the way, is that so later on, I, I had the privilege of studying with some incredible teachers. One was Barry Galbraith, who was, um, you know, great jazz guitar player and probably the busiest studio guy in New York in the 50s and early 60s. And the second I walked into his house, he had these extra, he had these musical, you know, like comping exercises and that he had written. And they were gorgeous. It was that they just dripped with musicality, and you know the voice leading and everything about it was just oh, I love this. 
And so it was a lot easier to to learn the material because it was I, I was learning something that gave me great pleasure. And it's musical because it's hard to you know it's it's hard to think the exercise is going to be musical and when you when you start to try to make it musical it sounds like an exercise. So to find mm. something in between where it's like actually playing playing music and uh, right. yeah that it is a trick though. Oh, that's that's cool. So kind of the dive in was that some of the takeaway with studying with him was kind of like the exercises and all this can be musical or it sounds like at yeah. that point that was already you had the technique stuff down especially like classical when you're working on just the fingering or like I don't know right I had well <clears throat> I had studied with it so what happened was I started as a classical guitar player and then when I was about 11 my mom says you know you're not gonna make any money this way you should be looking at some of this you know, more popular stuff, jazz and so on. And I went to a few other teachers and, um, you know, I was a great sight reader and I was learning stuff, but it was, it was not, it was not musical to me. It wasn't, wasn't interesting. But when I got to Barry, it was his chord voicings and it was his voice lead. And he was a sense of melody that he could create and he could design exercises that just, hit me it's like oh this is beautiful this there's there's some you know music can hit people on all kinds of different levels and on on me it was it was like a chord thing it's like what are the voicings of this chord how are these things moving how does this make me feel and uh with him it was bullseye and with with a couple of these other people i mean we were learning you know like standards of uh you know the late 60s at that point you know, uh, this guy's in love with you, and who can I turn to and stuff? And to me, that I don't know. Those songs didn't do much to me. They weren't. They weren't as good as the Cole Porter stuff. They weren't as good as the jazz standards. Um, and also, there are certain voicings in guitar for for jazz players that are different for rock and roll, or for um, um, I don't know. Back then, what they would call pop music. Um, and it, it, the, the exercises and the music I was doing with Barry Galbraith somehow just, I don't know, they hit some spot in me, some musical G spot. And, um, it, it was, it was clearer sailing from then on because of that. It was music. Yeah. 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 It's really interesting. It, like I was just reading, um, cause I don't, I'm always trying to like learn another way, you know? Um, I was reading Jimmy Jimmy um, uh, Jimmy Webb's Toonsmith book. Have you ever oh, read yeah, that? Oh yeah, that's a great book. Okay. Yeah, it's a great book. So I just got to the voice leading part, and like he, mm-hmm. there's little nuggets in there that I didn't learn going through school, and or at least illustrated in a different way. And um, mm-hmm. and it's 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 really interesting with like uh, with like jazz standards, though there are a lot of two five ones, though there are a lot, there are a lot of the same movement. What what makes it interesting is how it's voiced and what instruments are doing that and what what flair like oh these are all fourths moving or the inner works of this of this progression that's why it goes through the two whatever it's 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 a fascinating and rewarding puzzle that the brain is just like we got the home you know <laughs> that's cool mm-hmm. that's cool that's a great that's a great book by the way it's it's sort of like a a, a compendium of all his thoughts on on songwriting in, in many different departments. Right, because at the very end, of, like I'm skipping, I'm halfway through it. And I'm like, oh man, he's getting into like publishing stuff. I'm like, oh cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's but a great book. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was gonna say so. Moving on from let's let's get Mary Beth caught up. Let's so let's put a pin in that. And then uh, so Mary Beth, with you was music in your family. Um, <clears throat> somebody in my family was always listening to music, mm. but they weren't always playing it. <laughs> so um, all of us, I have I had two older brothers, have two older brothers, and um, we all were required to play an instrument like. We had to pick an instrument and learn how to play it. It was really important to my parents because they listened to a lot of music, but neither one of them played anything. So uh, my oldest brother chose drums. My middle, my well, they're both older. My other brother chose trumpet, and I don't know how this happened, but um, I ended up playing the clarinet awfully, badly, terribly. Like People were begging me not to practice. It was awful. And... Uh, <laughs> I played for two years, and uh, I'm not. And Mike and I have this conversation on a regular basis. I like okay. My favorite quote of any musician is Ella Fitzgerald, when she and I have this written down on my desk. It says, um, "The only thing better than singing is more singing." I've always loved to sing, always like since I was a little kid. Um, sang in every choir. Um, church school had solos all the time you know I was one of the kids that got picked using this um and so when I was in fifth grade and I started playing the clarinet very badly my parents were I mean everyone was like oh my gosh she's so awful um I was awful and I don't have a um natural I don't have any sort of natural talent when it comes to playing an instrument and whatever talent that I do have is hard earned like I I probably have to practice five times as much as somebody else playing the guitar or the ukulele or anything because it just doesn't come naturally to me. But singing is um, singing is what I absolutely love to do. And so I talked to my I said I I I will gladly put down the clarinet if I can study voice. And so that's what happened. Interesting. It's in, it's like with like clarinet or like saxophones. In a weird way, it's kind of the you're breathing like you would for singing, but it's different. It's kind of like the opposite. You know what I mean? It's like, <clears throat> in, in a way, like, so I can see where that would be like, if you're, if naturally you just have the, the ability to find the note within yourself, to trying to find it outwards. And you know what I mean? Like with amateur, it's a different approach. And like, so, because I, I, I've tried to play sax and clarinet and I'm, I, I can't, I get, I, most people tell me to stop too. So I relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> It was just, it was not, it was not my, and I did learn how to play guitar later, but just, you know, like regular chords. Yeah. And now when we play, I play ukulele and I, um, I play electric guitar on a couple songs. I have to practice almost every day and, uh, to keep up the little skill that I have. And, um, Mike very generously had this beautiful, like shell pink guitar. Yeah, I saw the picture on Instagram. Yeah, it's a cool guitar. (laughs) It's a great guitar. I love my guitar, and I, I like, pet it every day. But um, uh, that helps me because I have this beautiful guitar that I get to play. But my love is singing, and um, uh, it always has been, and I think it always will be. Like, it just gives me so much joy to sing, and it makes me very happy and even doing things like scales, um, I love doing scales. Like, I just love to sing. And I think um, as 
I think Mike kind of alluded to this as well. Like when you find that thing in music that you love, that brings you joy and happiness, it doesn't really matter to me who hears it or they don't hear it. it. For me, my personal joy and happiness and satisfaction comes from singing. And so uh, I think if someone like a student or if someone can find that joy um, and that happiness, then that just opens up a whole nother, just opens up every opportunity in the world in terms of the whole like musical universe. Then you want to learn so much more. I think, yeah, I think that's key. You know, I, I met um, this producer once who gave this incredible piece of insight. I think it may have been Jimmy Braulauer. And um, he said, He's produced all kinds of records. Like, you know, you name the kind of music and he's produced it. And he said initially some of the music he didn't like. Um, but what he would do is before he would take on a project, he would listen very, very carefully to everything that was going on. And he would take it on if he found an element in that music, whether it was rhythmic or harmonic or melodic or a lyrically or the drum part or something that he could fall in love with. And that was the entrance into the rest of the music for him. And uh, he found that that joy that Mary Beth's talking about in an element of the music. And I always found that interesting. Yeah, that's really insightful. Because, you know, all the elements that of the music you love, you know, they're in other things, too. You know, like, somehow... You know, there's blue notes in country music, and there's third bends and blues, and uh, you know, um, it's just it's finding that thing, and like, it's I find it one uh, super super cool that like just even like you enjoy singing so much the the practice of running the scales, which is in 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 a form of musicality the most unmusical thing in a way, you know, um, when you just do it by itself. And it should mm-hmm. be the less, the least, like, rewarding that you find it rewarding. And, like, thinking about when you said that, I'm like, when you do sing a scale and you get to, the, like, the bit, you're like, you feel like you did it right. I don't know. It is. it is, But that's that's finding, being in, in love with the practice of it and, and the craft of it and being able to see that this scale is potential potential energy to convey myself somehow. And it's, yeah. I guess it's finding finding the fun in learning that and applying that. Um, yeah. So, Mike, when um, one thing I found interesting is your mom said you weren't going to make any money doing classical music. So, at a young age, were you like, "This is what I'm going to do"? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> w- w- uh, no, but but I I, I always <clears throat> I had this um, you know, terrible thing I had to get over, you know, which was I love music. It's easy for me, yet I'm being pressured. Mm. So I had to later on, I mean, I had to go to a shrink literally for, for all kinds of reasons, but that was one of them, you know, later as a very young adult to decide what am I going to do? Um, for instance, uh, you know, at that point I could have, I could have ended up like a burnt out athlete and, and decided I, I feel too much pressure. This isn't fun. I'm going to go do something else. The problem was I listened it, when I was a, in high school and in junior high school, I didn't smoke pot. I didn't take drugs. I, you know, when I was in trouble, I'd come home from school 
and I'd turn on the stereo and I would stare at the ceiling for like three hours. And that was my drugs, mm. you know? Yeah. And so I really, I really honestly, truly loved music. Yet my mom in, in her trying to get me to be this great player was kind of, you know, ruining it for me. So I had to separate that, those two things out. And when I finally decided, okay, I don't care what my mom said or did, I'm going to own this. This is mine. I love it. And then I knew what to do. I knew how to move forward. Wow. That's beautiful. It, like, I relate to that a lot, too, because I, I, I never really did any. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I never, like, it just never was for me. And I, I'm not putting that down to anyone who does it, yeah. you know, in a, in a way that's not uh, wrecking their life. Um, but, like, it, I, that, for me, it was the same thing. There was, like, this pressure to kind of, I didn't have anyone else but myself doing it. So I can't imagine, mm-hmm. like, having someone being like, you can, you got to exceed at this. That was just my record in my head spinning. Like you can do better. You can do better. And like, um, so, but that's, I think that that's a beautiful movement to take it and own it. And that's such like, that's such a big feat by itself. And like that, that, that's okay. So when that happened, when that happened, was that like before studying jazz and before like, or is that like no, during the pro- okay? It was that was a it was moment. somewhere around it was somewhere around age twenty yeah. or so and and um, to tell you the truth, so I studied with Barry Galbraith pretty much for ten years, yeah. but there was a period where he fired me, hmm. and he says, "Look, because you're not practicing, because I've got all these other people to teach, you know, sorry, bye." And you know, I went home and I went, "Oh man, this can't, I can't do this." So I started practicing. You know, <laughs> and it's like then I I went, you know, knocking on his door to say, "Please take me back." And he was a great guy. Says, "Okay." And <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, it 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 went on it went on from there, but uh, you know, the practicing thing. Some people are really great at it, and um, I've never I've never been good at it. Um, because there is there is a tedium to it, and there's you have to find a way to enjoy the practicing. Like Mary Beth says, she enjoys scales. Um, you know, I'm okay with the scales. I like them. I don't love them, um, but they're they're fine. You know, I'm I'm always looking for what's the musical payoff here. Like right. you said, they're. I mean, in one way, they're they're not a real musical thing. Um, but on the other hand, they're the basis of all this other great musical stuff. Um, you know, um, Oh, here's what I want to say. So the, the other thing I learned about joy of music and, uh, not pressuring oneself is, and this is something I would, I, I told, um, you know, my guitar students and, um, a lot of, it's just sort of discovery I made, which is, it's, I think it's important to be really, really hard, on, not on yourself, but on your technique, and say, you know what, this is good. I'm going to get this right, and I'm going to work on it. But on the other hand, you can't be hard on yourself. You can't do it, you can't be, take it personally. And you can't say, I suck because I did not accomplish X, Y, Z because that is counterproductive. But if you say, okay, I I just recorded this thing, I listen back, or I can hear what I'm doing, and it's not really what I want, um, to be able to say, okay, I need to work on scales, or I need to work on technique, or I need to work on whatever it might be to get where I want to go, 
but I'm not going to beat myself up over it. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to you know, possibly create a little schedule of every day what I need to do, and I'm going to do it. But I'm not going to give up, and I'm not going to beat myself up because it's not perfect right now. That's, Two different things. Yeah, no, it's and that's key. And like that's I, I don't know, I see that as such a payoff from like especially like singing and playing like something so personal as your voice, you know, and there's such a standard for what a good voice is and like um same with guitar playing and like uh it, it, it just there's no like for me, like I I wasn't a natural singer. I was I was able to figure out the guitar, but that was only through like relentless like picking at it you know and but then it made sense so like mm. and i that kind of process of like hearing what i hearing what you recorded and hearing what it sounds like and being like the gut reaction is oh it's awful but you like just like you said you gotta look at the practice and be like those two notes are right let me look mm. on that third note and roll tape again you know what i mean like and it, it slowly you just start to like accept what you are and where you're at, and it's it's a really interesting process because like it, it's so uncomfortable at first, and like that, but just like you said, it's it's key and it is counterproductive to to denounce or belittle yourself as opposed mm-hmm. to build up from where you start, and like right, yeah, wow, very cool, um, yeah, but yeah, so um. Like with uh, well, let's get let's get Mary Beth caught up. So with uh, Mary Beth, when did you start working with Eva Cassidy, and like what was the what was a big payoff with working with her? Because I read that that well, changed a lot of your approach. She did. I'll tell you. Um, uh, I worked with Eva. I was in a cover band um, called Ignition in the D.C. area for many many years, and um, my drummer was Dave Christopher's roommate, and Dave Christopher uh, was one of Eva's best friends, and they played in bands together, like, all through high school. And um, they they decided to uh, put a band together called Method Actor, and they were playing um, all kinds of festivals and showcases. It was really to get Eva a recording contract, and uh, they needed a background vocalist that could sing above Eva you know, soprano. And, um, of course my drummer and, uh, bass player were like, you should get Mary Beth. <laughs> so they came out to hear me, to hear the band do covers. And they were like, okay, great. So, um, they originally hired, uh, me and another girl and the, uh, didn't, the other girl didn't work out. And so they hired my ex-husband who I sang with. Um, and he and I, did her background vocals for her. Um, but so I studied, uh, I studied classical music and classical voice, even though I didn't want to be a classical singer. And, uh, I, but I sang popular music and musical theater, but I never had anybody teach me to approach the song from an emotional standpoint. And, um, that's what Eva did. When Eva and I had always sung cover songs with cover bands, and the whole thing was, oh, you have to make it sound just like the record because we're playing in all these dance clubs. At the time, dance music was really popular, and we were playing five, six nights a week in all these dance clubs. And we, our goal was to sound like the record because that's what everybody wanted to dance to. <clears throat> but <clears throat> Eva didn't do that. Eva did the opposite. 
she took the song and she like even her cover stuff that she did for her the important part was she looked I mean she when she broke a song down she looked at it first from the emotional standpoint and then from the technical standpoint so she was trying to whatever emotion she felt with the song that's what she was trying to convey to the audience and that had never happened to me before. Like I, I never even thought about that before. And I never thought of taking a cover song and flipping it on its head and doing it the way that I wanted to. I did it the way the record, it sounded on the record because that, that was my job. Um, <clears throat> so that like opened complete new doors for me and in, in terms of my own personal development and like <clears throat> musical development because I was able to like go, oh, so in the in our cover band, I still sang every note exactly the same way the person did it. But when I was doing music outside of that, I, I just started thinking of how I wanted to present a song and and <clears throat> how the song made me feel and what I could do vocally to to portray that so that other people listening um, may come into that like circle of what I was feeling when I sang it. Okay. Well, it's, it's crazy. You know, especially when like the gig is replicate what you hear, you start to lose that emotional connection because you're, you're focused so much on the the replicating it. And even I found it interesting through like going through, um, like I went to Cleveland state for music therapy and like just, just the, the, practical things and like when you do ear training or whatever a lot of it it's so un they don't really teach you how to feel the music it's weird like yes tempo wise okay you can feel that's in six eight this is what that feels like this is how you count it but like emotionally conveying and emotionally being aware it's like it's kind of like well yeah you know that right but no when you learn all these techniques you don't really learn techniques to emotionally engage and um it's that that but that's how you learn it is from the people you're with and studying and influenced by that's really cool awesome so like that's really i mean that is how i approach every song that i sing but now especially because most of what we do is stuff that mike writes so nobody's ever heard it before or if it comes to me first which is really nice to be able to sing a song for anybody else that gets to record it um no one's recorded that song before so it 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 comes, it's kind of like this little gift and Mike saying, here's this song that I wrote, you know, what are, and I'm looking at it going, okay, what am I going to do with it? And my first approach to anything now is what does this song mean to me? How do I, how does this song make me feel? And how am I going to convey that in what I'm singing? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's a, it's a process that, it's weird that you you know it's not kind of yeah that's how you started but that's 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 really cool and that's a really emotionally like uh, mature and like well thought out way to approach it. You know the other thing is um, Mary Beth was talking about the tunes I write, but sometimes like in our live shows we'll play cover tunes, and we only pick cover tunes like we'll that somehow we're going to do a little differently or a lot differently because, you know, for instance, we love the Beatles or I do anyhow, for sure. Um, and if we're going to go do a Beatles song, 
it's like, well, why go try to do exactly what they did? The world has that. It's on record. Everybody owns those records. They don't need us to go replicate that. Right. And we're not a tribute band. We're not interested in being a tribute band. We want to do something different. Um, you, you know, it's like well, we want to put something of ourselves in it and connect to it, you know, have our own emotion rather than the emotion or the intent or the feel of the original artist. Because the world has all those records. We don't need to, you know, just duplicate it. Yeah, I think that, and I think a great example of that with Eva is uh, Fields of Gold. When you hear Sting do Fields of Gold, and you hear Eva do Fields of Gold, it's like two completely different emotional responses to the song, at least for me. Like, when I heard her do it, I was like, oh, that's what he was talking about. <laughs> it just like yeah. opened opened this big door and I, I don't know if you've ever listened to both of those versions of the songs but um, they're very different and um, uh, Eva definitely I feel the emotion of the song more and Sting wrote it right mm-hmm. um, but I think I, I read it something an interview with him and I don't remember where it was and I don't know how, you never know how true an interview is like if they actually say what the person said or not but I think he said that he liked her version better than his. Like, he heard her version, and he was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's, it's, there's also, I was watching um, this uh, documentary on, on Motown uh, last night, and it was hosted by Barry Gordy, and and there was one fascinating example. They had um, uh, the grapevine. I heard it through the grapevine. And they had the Marvin Gaye version that everybody knew. And then there was another version that was completely different. And I forget who did it. Was it Gladys Knight? It might have been Gladys Knight. I forget who it was. It was real up-tempo, and it felt completely different. It was Gladys Knight. And it was, it was fine, but it wasn't a hit because yeah. they put a different thing into it. They had an emo- a different emotional approach uh, than, uh, than Marvin Gaye did. And... and um, you know, there's so much a, a a human being, anybody, can bring to a song uh, that's completely different from what everybody else in the world can bring to it. It's that, you know, your whole being gets translated somehow into, into that song. It, it becomes something else because person A does it instead of person B. Well, I think it's interesting when somebody who writes the song doesn't have a hit with it and somebody else mm-hmm. has yeah. a hit. Yeah, that yeah. that is fascinating. What what uh what emotion is is captivated or, or dove into? Because like even just in general, like if someone feels happy, that to that person is completely different to someone else. You know, what I mean just like what makes you happy? I like trains, I like peanut butter. Like <laughs> whatever it is, like uh, just something as basic as joy is internalized so different even though it's felt the same you know, or, or or you know what i mean like uh if for emotion we all share it's so different and like it, it just it put in a musical context you know we you really get to see it you get to or not see it but hear it and, and that yeah. um heard it through the grapevine is a great example because like like you're saying both glass night had hits too and like mm-hmm. but what was it about that slower kind of like uh, uh, was it the voice? I, was it because Marvin sang it? Was it how? Like, and like, it was I mean, everything. It was everything yeah. about that rendition that was so wonderful. 
But I mean, I mean, to me, he's one of my very, very favorite singers. I think he was one of the greatest phrasers of all time vocally. Um, <clears throat> but there's, you know, it also proves, at least, you know, I have another little theory, you know, having, you know, produced other people and, and you know, run a studio. Um, you know, every musician, whether it's a singer or a guitar player or a drummer, has, th there is, there's a subtlety of emotion. It's not just I'm happy or I'm sad or something. It's like almost like handwriting. You know, it's just unique to every every person. There's a the if the if the person's lets go, they are going to come through the song or they're going to come through the instrument, and you're going to feel this thing that you can't put your finger on, but it's them. It's it's the sound that they make. It's it's like they're the way they think and everything they feel will come through that song somehow. Um, there's, um, there are a lot of famous examples of, of um, I forget who it was now, magazine article I read years ago in Guitar Player. Somebody was backstage at an Eddie Van Halen concert and picked up Eddie's guitar and his rig and started playing it. And it did not sound like Eddie Van Halen. It sounded like the guy who picked up the guitar. Right. Be yeah, yeah. Because the big, the biggest instrument is the person, and whether it, 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 all these subtleties come through. So when Eddie Van Halen picks up a little, let's just say a classical guitar, it's going to sound a lot more like Eddie Van Halen than me picking up all that stuff that went through his rig and playing something. It's still going to sound like me. Definitely. <laughs> so. You know, I think when when we're lucky and we let ourselves go, that's part of music. It's like, I'm going to be me through this instrument. I'm going to let, you know, my emotion and my feeling come through whatever I'm, you know, if it's guitar, it's going to come through my guitar. It's going to come, you know, that's the other thing. I I learned that even drummers are the sound, the way they hit the drums. And is when I've recorded, there was a drummer in my studio once I could never get a good sound on, and I don't, I couldn't figure it out. I had everything right, I had the microphones placed right, uh, all the levels were right, I just couldn't, and he was a good drummer. I couldn't get a good sound on him. I brought in another guy, and he, on the same kit, same microphone placement, and it was perfect. Because he had a different sound on the drums. I mean, you're banging on this thing, and still, technique and personality and emotion come through that are different from everybody else in the world. To me, that was fascinating. That is, it, it, it in, because it's that, that's science and music. You like, ever all the parameters are the same. What's the one thing? And it's interesting, like with a, uh, with recording, how much of it is kind of psychological more so than it is practical in a way. Like, um, to tap into that thing where you can emotionally, like, be in the flow and things just come out. It's such, like, a, a trickier environment when you're new to it. I'm, I'm sure you worked with a lot of people who are new to it or even experienced in it, like, to leave that kind of, like, performing and natural state to go into into a lab and like get the same results it's it's it seems like it's at least from from my experience much more uh, psychological than it is anything else and making the environment where the performer can get to that um well that's that's true but to me that's sort of like 
Um, if you have uh, a bunch of actors and you're shooting a scene, and you, instead of being the recording guy, you know, you're, and the producer and the engineer, you're the film crew. Okay. And now those actors, you've got all these cameras around them and all these people. They have to somehow bring out the emotion and bring out something unique and interesting of themselves in that scene. They have to have it in their heads that they're alone, you know, especially if it's a love scene. I mean, you know, they're alone and nobody else is around them. There's no lights. There's, you know, there's no, uh, you know, camera crew. There's, there's nobody, they're standing with a script. And yet all this emotion and all this, you know, interesting stuff's got to come out of the scene. It's a little similar with the recording process. You know, to learn how to become a recording artist is a whole other thing. To be able to stand there and sing and not worry that there's a microphone on or there's an engineer there or there are other people listening carefully uh, to every note you're singing or playing, that's, that's uh, again, that's separating out and saying, okay, I can, I don't care what's going on around me, I'm going to be myself right now, even with all this, you know, with this microphone and, um, uh, and this rather unnatural environment. So the kind of, let's cut, I agree. Um, but when, when, when you owned music, the kind of step back and catch up where we, where we are, cause I don't want to not talk about the record. Uh, <laughs> even though this is completely fascinating and this, these are the conversations I, I really, really enjoy. Um, when, when you owned music, when you said, I'm going to make this my own, when did you, did you start songwriting first or learning how to like record in, in that aspect of it? Oh no, the recording thing uh, developed uh, later. Okay. Uh, you know, I started with a MIDI studio, and and um, it was I had I had recorded some of my songs and you know demos in, in people's studios, and I just I liked the idea of having complete control over the sound of it. And um, it's not that I went to a b bad recording studios; I went to some good recording studios. But I was fascinated that that these guys used the studio as a different instrument, you know, that they were able to enhance or change what the song was or what the performance was by what they did on the mixing board or by placement of microphones. So I was, I became very interested in that as well. Okay. So being involved, because it is, it is another like way. It's the final thing in a weird way of what you put out and how that's, augmented to be what it's going to be um mm -hmm. so you were okay so you're writing songs and like let's kind of get caught up to where you guys meet because you guys met before before twang town was a thing like or or even a thought y you guys met and mm -hmm. was that through mutual gigs was this like how did well i'll let, I'll let mary beth tell the story okay <laughs> tells it better <laughs> no, we didn't, we didn't know each other at all. Um, we had um, a friend, that, a, a, a mutual acquaintance that owned a recording studio. And I, when I first came to Nashville, um, I did background vocals for him. Because um, people would send songs and say, will you please record this? And, that, and they didn't. Um, songwriters would uh, make demos. It was really a, generally a demo studio. 
And um, I had done background vocals for him. And some songwriters are not the best singers, so they hire other people to record their music. And I was one of the people that sang the demos. And mostly I did background vocals for him. And um, I was working on my own project. I wanted to do like a jazz project. And uh, I was in using the studio, his studio to record jazz demos. And um, I, le- I, I, went, I usually went at lunch because I had a day job and I would run down at lunch and record and then run back to my office. And uh, I was leaving one day and uh, I passed Mike and this other pretty well-known songwriter coming in. And um, I was like, oh, well, he's cute. And I left. And uh, then when I came back, I don't know when it was, a week or two later, um, I was talking to Jay and he said, hey, that guy, um, I said, who is that guy? that was walking in and he was like, Oh, that's interesting. Cause he asked about you too. And I was like, well, you he said, you, you can give him my email address. Is he an okay guy? He said, yeah, he's an okay guy. I think you'll like him. I was like, okay. So, um, he, he sent like my, my email address and we emailed back and forth and we, um, we set a date. I don't know if remember if it was for dinner or coffee, but whatever it was, I got sick. I had a really bad cold and I canceled. And uh, Mike thought I canceled because I, I um, wasn't interested. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not true. I was sick, and I didn't want to meet somebody for the first time, like, on a date and uh, and have a cold. You know, I wasn't feeling well. So, anyway, we, were, we rescheduled. We met up at a Starbucks in Nashville, and we, before the pandemic, actually, we tried to go back to that Starbucks um, on the day that we had our first coffee date, like on that day. Aww, that's um, awesome. <laughs> well, tried. Like, Not that it didn't happen, but it's awesome. <laughs> but the really interesting thing for me was the so we dated for about a year or so. Uh, well, we started dating in 2007, and we didn't cut. We didn't make the first record till 2010, but. What was happening was Mike was hiring other people to do his demos. And I was really frustrated because I felt like I could do a better job on the people that he was paying on some of the demos. Like I, I'm not a bluegrass singer or, you know, there's certain kinds of music that I, is just not my like area. And of course you definitely should hire a bluegrass singer to do a bluegrass song, not me. But there were some, he was having some demo work done on some of the songs, and I, I was listening to, oh, yeah, that's really good. And I'm thinking, I would have changed that. I would have done that differently. Like, I just felt like I could have done a better job. And plus, I cared about him. So it was really important to me to have, like, the best work on his demos. Um, and finally, one day, he, he, was, he, he had the song that ended up going on our first record, and he was like, here's this demo. And I was just like, I just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> and I said, no, no, let's go downstairs. Let me do this. And I sang it and he was like, that's it. I said, yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I knew that. Yeah. So, so we dated for a long time. Well, probably at least a year, maybe two years before, uh, I, um, we put the, put the music into it because I didn't, I didn't, I, the relationship always came first to me, but I, I felt in my heart of hearts that I could do, I was like, yeah, I could do that. I could, it's awful to say I can sing better than that person. And it wasn't that I could sing better than whoever it was. He was have making the demos. It, I just like, I could sing it differently 
and I knew that I could sing it differently, and I knew like I felt I felt I knew what he was trying to get across in the song and that person wasn't doing that because to them it was just another song. But to me, it was right. his song. Yes, and I was glad she, she did that. And I don't know if that makes sense, but it was like, it, it's meant something to me. And when you're a demo singer and you're getting paid, you know, $200 or $300 a song and you have six songs to record that day, you may or may not put all the emotion in every right. one of them that, or to even take the time because it's really not your job. Yeah. Your yeah. job is to record the song for the person. Right. Right. And it's a demo. But, and like, right. and if you have no emotional connection to it and like just, you know, being in a relationship with someone, you can kind of gauge where maybe they're coming from, from that just from knowing them. And like right. that's it's like when when the band breaks up and they and they get the new the new rhythm section and get back together you're like well it's still I don't know it's still Iggy Pop but you know that's it's missing the Stooges you know like that, <laughs> that bring bringing out as like it's us against the world in a way of of conveying this emotional message and like. Mm-hmm. That I think one that's really cool that you guys like took time and were like we're gonna focus on us as a as a as a couple and not inner like not engage in like business which is in this case music and or you know what I mean and kind of have that respect for what each other does and but it's cool that it happened naturally and like and and because it was like let me help convey your message clearer because <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. It was very sweet. To uh, actually confirm something that both of you have said, so the day uh, that Mary Beth and I met, the reason I was in that other studio is because my friend and mentor, Paul Kraft, had said, why don't you come along with me? I'm going to re-demo this tune of mine. And uh, that's why I was there. And Paul, uh, Paul's actually, a lot of people have heard his music. He he wrote Drop Kick Me Jesus and Keep Me From Blowing Away for Linda Ronstadt and He's also the publisher. He's the guy who got the gambler out of the world. He was the he's the publisher for that song. But um, anyhow, so one of Paul's tricks, one of his tricks of success was he would keep redemoing his songs because different singers would have different approaches, and uh, and or, or Paul would say, you know what, I want to approach this song. Instead of doing it slow, I want to do it fast. Or instead of doing it fast, I want to do it, you know, with a Memphis groove. Um, and he kept trying different things with his songs, um, and that gave him a better chance of shopping those songs and of giving new life to them. Mm-hmm. And it was a very smart thing. It, it, and I don't know if you know this, um, Dave, but um, that song, I Can't Make You Love Me, that Bonnie Raitt does, that Alan Shamblin and uh, I can't think of the other guy that wrote it with him. Mike Reed. Mike Reed wrote. It yeah. was originally a bluegrass song. Huh. And um, they they had a, they had demoed it as a bluegrass song, and then they re-demoed it. Well, I think they rewrote the music pretty significantly. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then they they gave, they gave um, played it for Bonnie Raitt. And it's like, when I, you hear that song, I'm, I'm, I, I think, well, how could that be a bluegrass song? Like, I'm sure it was because that's how they wrote it. But um, that's also an interesting thing. Like a person, a musician can take a song that someone else has written and reinterpret it right. so that it, it could be even more accessible than it was. 
or re 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 produce it produce it a different way or whatever and that's what we were talking about that earlier like some songs become hits after two or three people record it like mm-hmm. it's because it just depends on like what is going on like with popular music at the time right. and also like what that person who is interpreting it how they interpret it so um i think that's very cool and i just as i said i i I just interpret stuff personally from my point of view and uh, that may be good or it may be bad because in a way I, I think sometimes the way I interpret a song could close it off to the, from the audience interpreting it a different way. Um, but it also, on the other hand, makes it like personal and I think they feel that when they hear it. Right. Right. And like you have to, you have to come from your perspective you know eventually it's got to be like how you feel about it and like i i guess it could be endless you know it could be endless renditions of stuff and like one one thing i find fascinating is when (laughs) and more funny is when you hear like complete genre swaps of a song like yeah yeah. like the slayer but reggae music (laughs) it's like Mm -hmm. the absurdism in it but um but when you're when you're writing a song it it, it's that starts to get overwhelming in a way too you're like what do we do but um that's i I don't know i agree that's really cool i didn't know that and that is a a great technique especially because you can hear like how you're saying you can hear different inflections on it and just like to really see what makes that song stick and to be able to to shop or to send those demos to different artists and get that—that's a really cool spot to be in. Um, yeah, probably overwhelming. Smart guy. But um, um, so okay, so what song was it that you went and demoed for that? That was off the first record. Oh, nowhere to go. Nowhere yeah. To called. Go. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good tune. Yeah, I dove back into the the three records you guys have. Um, so let's kind of so it just kept shopping demo or just kept a uh, tracking demos and then you guys are like let's roll with this. When did it become a become let's do our own thing? Well, what ha- actually what happened was uh, when we did that tune, it had a different sound to it than anything I was doing at the time. And then I forget we oh. did another couple of tunes. Can I tell him one other thing about that song? What? We were sp- it was Valentine's Day. We were supposed to go out to dinner. Oh, yeah. And I was like, no, no, I really want to fix the song. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And I was like, cancel the dinner reservation. I- I've just got to fix this. So <laughs> so we spent the evening in the studio. Right. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> so once we had that tune, I forget what the other two tunes were, oh. but they started to... They, they felt like they belonged in the same group of songs. And then once we had three songs, then then we decided uh, we had a direction, we had an interesting musical direction to go with and something we both liked, and we developed an entire album. Around and we that. started playing around like at writer's nights and stuff just to see how the music would go over and how we would perform it like out of the studio. Right. Um, and we started playing... A little bit, not a lot. We started playing, yeah. Um, and then we got into Kerrville, and uh, the new folk uh, in 2011. We got into Kerrville, and uh, we were like, "Oh, maybe we've got something here." Yeah. Well, is it? Yeah. Because that first that first record's really. I mean, all three of them really good. The first two have this kind of like a kind of folk, um, 
country, mm-hmm. even bluegrass. Like I, I like the one the, the the hula hula with the 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 Hawaiian oh, vibes yeah. to it. That was like yeah. good. it's cool and like your voice fits in a very unique way in that one. And same with the uh, the gingerbread um, uh, one on the new record. I'm like there's a there's a thing I don't know what it is harmonies backing it or what it may be. Um, so it's it's a really interesting one. They're all really well written songs. And like just the the kind of style that approaches into into it, because I remember both the gingerbread and uh, uh, um, the hula one were like they're both kind of at the end of the record, and it's this kind of like fun poppy mm-hmm. tune. And that's um, one thing that uh, progressed uh, even through the newest one, which is kind of blues based, is like there's this positive attitude. Like um, one song that really stuck out to me was on the the promise of Friday night, um, the last one, flowers when you're dead. Like oh, yeah. that, I was like, "Oh, this is a really good written. This is well written and well performed." Like, but uh, it, it's 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 like being here now. Like, I don't know. It wasn't it wasn't like a bummer of a song when you read the title. You're like, "Oh, flowers when you're dead." But um, so after after this first record and kind of move what move the second record felt like you guys really it felt tighter than the first one. Just like yes. So what was so the, the kind of process with that? Well, the first record, we were, we were trying stuff. And the second record, so we had a radio promoter who was a folk radio promoter. Mm. And she got the first record to, like, number 11 on the folk DJ charts for us. And so at that point, I was ready to, to make something like what you hear on the third record. And we had a meeting with her, and she says, oh, no, no, that you can't, you can't do that. You guys have gotten into Kerrville. And, um, you know, you need to really cement your reputation with the folk DJs and so you can go out there and play more little, you know, duo gigs. You need an all-acoustic record that's for the folk DJs. And I fought her for about 15 minutes and went, crap, she's she's absolutely right. And so that's what we did. We made a record that um, the drums are very muted on it it's it's mostly like hand percussion stuff there's no electric guitar um there are, uh what what did i play on there the um i played some mandolin on there i played some um, that jingly jangly thing that you did on uh yeah the <laughs> mandola yeah well, you know what what is it you know i can it's what's the it's the irish instrument it's the um, yeah it's also called the mandola and i oh. can't think of the uh, uh oh crap I can't think of the the other name for it. The jingly jangly thing. The jingly jangly thing. <laughs> you <know>. Yeah. <laughs> you know that jingly jangly thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a jingle jangle thing. We played that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so that was That's an acoustic awesome. record. So right. That was focused, and that did that that did really well on 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 uh, the folk um, chart. We got to number two, and the only guy who beat us out was Woody Guthrie because it was the uh, Folkway Centennial. Uh, release of his work right that month when we when we released, but we did very well and it was it was a nice album, but that's not the direction I, I had wanted to go. That's not what you know. So we finally put you know um, during the pandemic had collected enough songs for this record with the same direction and I just knew what I wanted to do, and that's what we went and recorded you know these songs that are as you said much more blues based and it's it's really a retro sounding kind of record and most of it anyhow a lot of it and there are influences of the beatles and there are influences of memphis horns and 
some R and B, some blues. Mm-hmm. We had a. I had. I. I can't speak for Mary Beth, but I had a way better time making that record than the others. Okay, I had fun making all of them, but singing wise, singing like more R and B, like blues kind of stuff, is more fun. <laughs> right. Well, right. Yeah, it's most you... fun. <laughs> and it seems yeah. like it would kind of fit fit your background of like where you came from or like musically at least um and it's interesting just because like when you harmonize or when you approach like vocally supporting like uh harmonies is what the word i'm looking for is it's different it's different like when i think of like the harmonies on double down um it's different than what you would hear like on the first two records just because of the nature of the music and the instrumentation so like right it had it had to be refreshing too to like kind of shift gears into this mindset Mm -hmm. it was fun it was fun yeah you know well you you know chord voicings a lot of stuff's going to be different it's part of what defines one genre from you know differentiates one genre from the other there are a million little subtleties and you know one is you know what did the background vocals sound like um we listened to a lot of ronettes and supremes and stuff yeah Mm -hmm. before we did the background vocals because that's kind of in fact, we referred to each background vocal part. We we they were they were we called them. Well, she's singing this and she's singing that, even though it was all me. Um, the, yeah, I, I was being the Twang Town ets or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what we you know we wanted that yeah girl band background vocal sound. When uh, for the background. Dissecting that, like, what are some things that stuck out studying, like, studying these, uh, the Ronettes, and like, what are some kind of techniques that, like, uh, that really stuck out that you implemented in the record? Well, they did echoing. Okay. Um, um, you know, they would repeat the background vocals, and I did that. Um, and also, the other cool thing is sometimes they would like sing in emotion, and we did that on Whoa Nelly. There's a, oh, yeah, oh, oh yeah. no kind of thing um <laughs> and we just did that and i you know we were in the studio and i we just went in and i was just improvising different things until we came up with what we got like oh no bye bye um <clears throat> it's that kind of echoing and then also um if you listen to the ronette sometimes or the supremes or whatever they did a lot of repeats some they did some stuff in unison, and then they they did um, or they'll they'll do the echo in unison, and then they'll go in and they'll split you know the they'll split into harmony. Um, <clears throat> so we that's kind of in and out of the record, and we didn't we experimented a lot. So um, so I would do background vocals. It would sometimes take a week to like experiment and put them down and go back and listen and see what we liked and see what we didn't like. And it was really Mike, God bless him, who sat in the studio and listened to all the different parts. Cause I, I would just give him all kinds of things and he would sit and, and kind of put them together into what he thought worked. And um, I, I agreed with him. I would say 99% of the time, but it was a lot of experimentation. And that part of it was fun. We also, the other thing was we kept the, um, you know, when you have a recording studio, it's it's tremendous power, especially these days. You can do anything. Um, And um, I wanted to keep, I didn't want like a million vocals in there and I didn't want a million saxophones. I wanted to keep things relatively small. Right. So, 
you know, the sound of the mid to early 60s was uh, there weren't a, a billion vocals on there. There were like two girls, maybe three. And so we mostly kept it to that as far as background vocals. Um, you know, on Gingerbread Man, uh, no, it was on, and Double Down, those guys gave me a million parts. And I had to go cut them way back. So it, it was just really a couple of a couple of players. It wasn't, you know, a later sound. It wasn't like, um, you know, more is better. It was it was just let's do this where it feels right, <clears throat> where it felt right to me. Right. It wasn't like a choir, like right. a gospel choir, mm-hmm. like you got in the '70s and the '80s, right? Um, or even now, um, it was simpler. And it was it was interesting to because we would try the echoes um, and I would just double I would just sing the mm-hmm. sing a part uh, and then double it um, and you just sing it again with the same girl. <laughs> so so some of these some of these things we did are 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 you know pretty close to what some of the artists would have done in the mid sixties and some of it's just like. Well, this feels right to us, and this is where we want it to be. And um, it's also, you know, there's no like synthesizers or anything on this record, um, which is part of what makes it more of a retro-sounding thing. Um, it, it was harder to not do stuff than it was to do stuff because, you know, um, and I think it's mostly. Well, there's a, most pop music out there is using all kinds of um, digital sounds. Right. And we wanted this to be a human-sounding record. We wanted this to be, we wanted this basically to be something to cheer ourselves up. It's a ha- mostly a very happy record, um, and something to cheer up the rest of the world because these were, you know, some pretty rough times we've been going through here the last couple of years. And um, we wanted to say to people. Hey, remember back when, you know, in the mid-60s when this country was doing great and we were on top of the world and everybody was working or, you know, not everybody, but more of the country and everybody felt more hopeful and we, you know, why don't we go back to that feeling and maybe that will help inspire people feel better. Maybe, you never know, maybe the emotion will, will lead people into a different kind of mindset, a different kind of action. And that's that last song that Mike wrote, um, All Right Again. I mean, that's exactly what that says, is it's going to be okay. Like, we're going to be all right. Right. And and music does such a way of transferring, like, an emotional state or a memory. And and it is quite an influencer. Like, I mean, it's easy for all three of us to say that because we do music, you know, and like, yeah, of course it's an influencer. Like, like, I based everything around it, but... It also it, it just how it changes in the environment that it is it, it's playing in or shared in just like and I found that fascinating and really cool because most blues records have the bummer the bummer jams <laughs> you know what I mean like they sound yeah. awesome like but they are kind of like yeah I know she left <sighs> now I have to think about it again <laughs> like um, well that's that's what the blues are the right, blues are, is right it, you yeah. know that's what form. the blues are for yeah right. <laughs> So it's just cool to see a positive, like, a, you know, uh, attempt with it and like, and then sincere mm. and not like a, you know, not a tongue in cheek, but like a, a very sincere uh, a, attempt and uh, not attempt, you did uh, a sincere approach to it, 
So that's <laughs> that's all I was trying to say with that. Um, yeah. But <laughs> it's awesome. Um, do you guys plan to do more of this style and more of this kind of approach for the next project? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I, I'm not sure exactly what the next how the next project could look, but I know we're um, we're about to go tour with you know to present um, the songs from this record and. Um, I can tell you, I haven't really, we haven't really sat down and discussed this completely, but I'm really enjoying this music a lot more than, than the stuff we were doing, the acoustic kind of stuff. And the more we play with a full band, the happier I am. And the more, you know, the more kind of, um, blues oriented, um, rock oriented stuff we do, um, the happier I am. It's just, so you know what? Why not do what makes you happy, whatever that is. And just being with a band's fun. You know what I mean? Like it's fun. That's right. Not that we're not fun together, but um, it's way nicer having drums and bass and two guitars and yeah. maybe a horn or two. And the joy for me is that I don't have to play anything um, if other people are playing it. Right. Who are much better at it, by the way. Uh, I, well, I mean, you two are fun. This has been a blast. I've had a I've had a great time chatting, and I really appreciate it. Um, you guys taking well, time to you. chat with me. Uh, are you guys planning to come to Ohio? Not. Uh, we don't have anything on the books. I think once the pandemic's really over, then we're going to start, you know, gotcha. looking more seriously about yeah. playing everywhere. Right now, we've booked a tour in the Northeast in uh, July. And they're all outdoors. all outdoor shows, all outdoors. Cool. And we're doing. We've got some other stuff, you know. And we've got some. All we're focusing on is outdoor shows, probably through the fall, and then we're hoping to switch to inside. Um, but I wanted to. So um, my oldest son went to Oberlin. He's a, oh, cool. he graduated in 2013. So we have been back and forth through Cleveland many times. Excellent. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, next time you guys are playing this way, let me know. I'd love to. Sh- I would love to see you live. Um, Absolutely. And uh, same here. Let us know if you get near Nashville or to Nashville. Will do. I'm trying. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Likewise. Thank you guys. <laughs>